HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, uh, and it's good to be here live uh, taping from Bushwick, Brooklyn at Roberta's Restaurant. Um, if you don't tune in live, you can always find past episodes of In the Drink on uh, www.HeritageRadioNetwork.org or on iTunes, where all the episodes are archived. Um, I'm extremely excited today to uh, bring to the show someone who I have worked with uh, professionally as uh, someone who's bought quite a bit of wine from him for the last, uh, oh, I don't know, about eight years or so, and, uh, and then have also sparked up a friendship uh, over the years um, with Mr. Doug Polliner. He, uh, he brings in, he's the vendor of such extraordinary wines that we are really proud to serve at our restaurants. Uh, wines, famous names such as uh, uh, Giuseppe Moscarello and Giacomo Conterno, and Prevost Champagne, Litteri, Arno Roberts, Huet. Uh, the, uh, the list goes on and on and on. And then real kind of up-and-comers that, that you're seeing uh, that you're seeing around all the place. Uh, one one of our probably our staff one of our staff favorite wines at all the restaurants is this small producer Mount Etna called Calabretta that uh, that we see at, at all the restaurants and uh, anytime there the the stock runs low or vintage changes there's a collective sigh from the staff because uh, they're all such big fans. Anyway, Doug, I am a big fan of yours. Welcome to In the Drink. It's great to have you. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure. Um, so tell us how, uh, I, I know that you, prior to starting your own company, you worked for many years as a wine, uh, salesperson, um, a, a challenging job to say the least, trying to get the, uh, the wine buyers of New York, uh, to, uh, to purchase your wine. There's so many, um, so many different options. How did you decide to start your own company? How did that, that come about? Well, it's an interesting story. You know, I did. I started in the wine business in um, in 1991, 
And, uh, you know, that was the dark ages <laughs> compared to now in a lot of ways. Um, obviously, a lot fewer companies. But, you know, it was good. I cut my teeth working for a company that no longer exists called Excelsior. Um, and then in 93, I joined um, Michael Skernick Wines. Um, and that was the early days of that company as well. I was their third sales rep. And uh, my territory was the entire state of New York and the entire state of New Jersey, except for Manhattan and Long Island. So uh, needless to say, I, I did a lot of driving. Um, it was a great experience. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I worked with them for six years, starting as a salesperson and then kind of working more uh, in their office and getting involved in, in buying and sourcing and, and things like that. But uh, when it got to uh, the end of the 90s, I was kind of trying to think about, you know, what I wanted to do, um, considered kind of staying on in a, in a more official um, status with them. Um, and I decided, you know, I'd, I was about to uh, to get married. And uh, my wife and I said, you know, if, na- if there's ever a time to try and take a chance and start a business, you know, now is the time. So we started in... Uh, in 1999 and i think the most interesting thing was uh you know when you when you start out again you think like oh yeah i know all these people i'm just gonna be able to walk in and everyone's gonna like you know open up their doors and say hey let me let me taste what you're you're showing and and let me buy and you know what happens is you you get to the back of the line (laughs) and um you know you have to start and you have to prove yourself again and again so what did you find was more challenging in those early days uh, getting the producers to sign on with a new uh, someone new who they've they've never heard of uh, before, um, or getting the buyers to bite once you already had that wine. You know, really, it was it was a little of both, Joe. You know, uh, in a lot of ways, I, you know, I think back to to those days. You know, when you'd go and you'd, you'd meet with producers and you'd say, "Hey, you know, have faith in me. You know, we we have no track record." But, you know, it's all going to be good. And, you know, a lot of people came on board early on um, and, you know, we were able to, to put together, you know, an interesting portfolio. You know, I, f- I felt like in order to be successful, you know, there were already lots of competitors out there. You know, we needed to be relevant. We needed to stand out in a certain way. Uh, we needed to differentiate. And so, you know, we really tried to put together, you know, an interesting uh, sort of ahead of its time portfolio and um it's kind of been the guiding light you know ever since you know the market's even more crowded now were there a couple of producers at that time where a kind of wine insiders knew about them and people would smuggle the bottles back in their suitcase when they went to europe but they weren't important you're like i'm gonna go out and get them well you know the whole piedmont thing um had been a passion you know i had already been going there uh, every year uh, in November, it's a perfect time to go, as you well know. There's other things to do besides just taste wine, uh, eat white truffles. Um, so I've been going for a long time. You know, I've been visiting a lot of these producers. I was visiting Roberto Conterno. I was visiting Mauro Mascarello. And so, you know, these are people that I already had relationships with uh, even before I, uh, we started our business. And so that kind of kept going, kept going, kept going. And they knew that, you know, we were super passionate about the category. Um, it was sort of when, um, traditional Barolo, what people were sort of rediscovering it. And so, you know, it was, it was ahead of its time to kind of get back into those wines. I mean, when we first started with those guys, you know, you could, you could buy whatever you wanted, you know, it wasn't like, Oh, here's your allocation. You know, it was like, well, how much Cascina Francia do you want? You know, how much Montprovado do you want? Obviously now it's like, 
here's your allotment, you know, pick it up by such and such a date or, or forget it, you know, someone else will pick it up. So um, definitely the times have changed. Yeah, and even as us wine buyers now, just uh, looking at our Bartolo Mascarello allocations are so minuscule. This is actually, having you on the show is actually my, my personal attempt to lobby you to increase the amount of Bartolo Mascarello the uh, Delanima can buy. I wish I could. I wish she would uh, <laughs> buy more land. It's funny because, you know, you talk to Maria Teresa and she's, she's a sweetheart, you know, and, and people are always like, well, why don't you just, you know, you're five hectares. That's nothing. Why don't you, you know, buy more land? She's like, yeah, people offer me, you know, these beautiful vineyards. And I'm like, I'm not really interested. You know, I, I like the, the size of what I do. I, I, you know, she she loves kind of that attachment to the past. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, at that winery, you go there on a weekend, like on a Sunday uh, or a Saturday in the middle of, of November, and there are people like who they were coming and who buy wine every year, and they sit and chatting with her for for hours, you know, to buy their three bottles of wine, you know. But that's how it always was, and so you know, she wants to kind of hold on to that, and obviously, you know, she could blink her eyes and sell all her wine and go on vacation for the next year, but you know, that's she she wants it kind of the, the way it was, and wow. I think that's it's interesting and it's admirable. And, you know, in that time in the, the 90s when you were making that transition to starting your own company, it's kind of tumultuous times in, in Piedmont, right? There's a huge divide that I think maybe in some ways has lessened now between people who are going one way with their style of wine production and people going with the other way. And it seems that, that you've kind of firmly planted the producers that, that you go for in the more traditional kind of bent. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. And, you know, I, I kind of came of age in the wine business um, selling the Marc de Grazia portfolio. So, you know, I, there was, those were sort of my reference points. And I remember buying and selling a lot of those wines and, and sort of thinking, wow, this is you know, really interesting. It's a whole new paradigm. It's Barolo that's approachable. Uh, and then I remember uh, kind of in towards the end of the 90s, um, I had a... Uh, a good friend, this guy, Tim Wilson, who uh, had worked for Rosenthal, worked a little for Skernick. He was a buyer. Uh, he was super passionate about the traditional wines. And I remember we did a series of, of tastings of wines kind of from the, the late 80s and early 90s, examples of kind of the great modernists and the great traditionalists. And it was in these tastings that kind of the light went on, like, wow, like Barolo is Barolo because you know, it's been made a certain way. And, you know, while the modern wines kind of were a little cleaner, maybe, uh, the Barolos, like traditional wines, just kind of spoke to you and uh, in a different way and were really soulful and just, just beautiful. And from that point on, I was like, this is really where it's at. And I think what's interesting is you see, you know, producers uh, apparently like Scavino now has like gotten rid of all their all their bariques and they're aging everything in boti and so you know i think a lot of those people have have come around not all of them um but you know i think that the interest as you see is is definitely in in the traditional wines i mean Mm -hmm. barolo made traditionally there's just nothing else that's like it you know it's absolutely nothing you know barolo made like napa valley cabernet you know it kind of tastes like a lot of other wines so uh, what i love about certain wines is that 
that you're they're unique you know especially with a varietal like nebbiolo which you know you this nebbiolo grown in many many places but you know there really is only one barolo one barbaresco and yeah, those I, I mean i'm with you and i and i totally share your uh, your passion for for uh for barolo and and especially the more traditional wines uh, uh from barolo do you find that on your trips there the conversation has shifted to something else i I feel like, you know, you obviously, you, you visit Piedmont more than I do, and you're more in, in touch, I think, with some of the producers. But I feel like the the conversation that I've heard has now been kind of moving more towards uh, the the vineyard, where before it was a little bit more about vinification. Now people are, even the, the more modernist-style producers or the, the riper-style producers are, are at least trying to, to be a little bit more gentle and green in the vineyard. I think so. I think everybody who is pretty much who's making quality wine today is really thinking about um, the whole viticulture aspect because, you know, winemaking is kind of a series of hundreds, if not thousands of tiny little decisions that you make along the way. And each of those decisions can impact either positively or negatively the ultimate quality of the wine. And what's amazing is to taste wines where you know uh, a producer's made significant progress in the viticulture and the changes in the actual wine that come from that are are just remarkable and they're not subtle changes they're they're big changes and uh what's amazing is is that you know that i think that people are realizing that this is an opportunity to really raise the bar Mm -hmm. uh in terms of quality is to really focus on 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 the vineyard uh to get the vineyard in balance um, to not stress it, to not over chemicalize it. And that is a way to, to increase your quality. Cause you know, if you focused on all the other things, you focused on everything in the cellar, your cellar's meticulous. You got to find another area to, to tweak it just a little bit to make your wines a little yeah, better. Now let's shift to another one of your passions is uh, champagne. This is kind of an area that, uh, Historically, it's been known to kind of absolutely brutalize their vineyards. It's probably the, some, of, some of the most egregious bad farming. Um, but there's also a, a, a green movement uh, in Champagne. Is that is that accurate? I mean, that's I, I've. Uh, it's the story that I've read. I've actually never visited Champagne to to. Uh, Full disclosure, but what I've heard from so many people is that you used to go to vineyards in Champagne and you could find Paris garbage in the vineyards and that and that sort of thing. And the the, the soils were just completely dead. Um, and now I know some of the, the producers that you work with um, uh, are are not doing that sort of thing, and that's revolutionary in a way. It is. I mean, Champagne was was definitely a a poster child for horrible chemical uh, viticulture uh, for a long time. And I think that a few uh, more progressive producers um, have definitely um, started a trend towards more natural viticulture, more natural winemaking, and I think are making you know some of the most exciting wines. I mean, and do you find that it's even... Uh, you can t- even through all the winemaking that goes into champagne, the um, the two fermentations and the ex- extended aging on the lees and the disgorgement and all this stuff, you can still tell the difference between a producer who has uh, been a good uh, carer of the environment. It's an interesting story. We're starting with a really fantastic um, small producer called um, La Herte. Um, You're getting La Herte? Yeah. Wow, I love those. You heard ones. it here. The wines are en route, be here soon. Uh, fantastic wines. And what's interesting, I was there uh, a couple months ago and tasted two champagnes. They make a, um, a Blanc de Blanc Brut Nature, 
um, from their vineyards near, in and around Chavot, which is which mm-hmm. is where they are. Um, and they recently took over some vineyards uh, from a family, a cousin or whatever, in the Côte de Blanc, in Avis, Grand Cru. And what's interesting is you taste the two wines side by side and you think, oh, wow, you know, the Grand Cru wine should, like, smoke it. And, in fact, it's the opposite. And the reason is, is because the, the, the Grand Cru wine from Avis uh, was farmed, you know, with chemicals. And he, he comes right out. He's like, look, we're starting to do the work. But, you know, this is the first example. So you here you have what's, I think, a, a very good terroir, but maybe not the, the 100% Grand Cru best, best terroir, um, where the viticulture trumps the pedigree of the vineyard. And night and day, not even close. Wow. I mean, those are wines that I already like, and so it'll be really exciting to see how they improve with uh, with the improved viticulture. But on that note, we're going to take just a uh, very quick break, and we'll be back with more with uh, Doug Polliner from Polliner Selections uh, after this. Victor's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost-be-damn, taste-is-everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said, it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right, we are back on In the Drink with Doug Polliner, the Polliner Selections. And, uh, God, just during the break, I was kind of going through my, my racking my brain of uh, all the great champagne producers that you guys have. Um, it's kind of like the, you know, the Lartuzzi champagne selection is is mostly <laughs> from, from you guys that I'm thinking about. But whether it's uh, Cedric Bouchard, Marie Cortin, Solos... Uh, Lermondier Bernier, Nala Ehert, um, Christophe Mignon, so many like outstanding, outstanding champagne producers, and all or mostly they're grower producers, right? Yes. Uh, how, is that is that something that is uh, a true passion of yours, grower producers? Do you feel like there's a, a certain difference? I know I just love the idea of someone who is growing their own grapes and trying to express. A terroir, especially in Champagne, or as I said before, it's such a manufactured product by a, a person, right? Uh, I feel like these are the, the best expressions of, of terroir in, in the Champagne region. 
Weather yeah, well. I, you know, I think Champagne is super, super exciting um, region right, right now. And it's, it's not just the producers that, that we have. I mean, I drink lots of other great small producers as well. I mean, we drink a lot of Champagne at home. Uh, for us, it's probably our favorite white wine. Um, I don't know. It's kind of become a little bit of a problem, but uh, we drink a lot of Champagne. Um, so we taste a lot, and uh, I go there fairly often, and it's it's exciting. It's exciting to be a part of this kind of emerging trend, as we were talking about on the break. You know, I think that what the story was in the 90s about grower if you're a grower you're good because you're small and you're making your wine from a particular village versus blending it from all over champagne which is in general what you know the grand marks did um that was an interesting dialogue i think it opened a lot of people's minds to you know kind of a new uh, paradigm in champagne but i think that now it's kind of gone even further um it's uh, more precise viticulture uh, it's less about blending. It's about taking uh, you know, a specific vineyard or vineyard, a specific terroir, um, doing like single vintage, single vineyard wines where it's a snapshot. It's more like a wine. It's a snapshot of that wine from that vineyard. So next year, you know, it's going to be different, but that's what makes wine great. You know, you, it's got a different, slightly different character. Um, so a, a lot of the guys that we work with are kind of working in this paradigm, and the champagnes are just super, super exciting. Um, they're very precise. Um, they tend to be a little bit more dry in style. Uh, I think the, the market's kind of going towards a bit drier in style. Um, my palate certainly is um, towards, you know, extra brute and even brute nature wines. But in order to make those wines, uh, it requires, you know, a huge amount of work on the viticulture side to have something that, you know, can just be pure and on its own. Right. It seems like there needs to be enough density and complexity of the fruit itself to compensate uh for having no sugar in champagne which is such a, a high acid sort of wine uh and I, I just love the way that you describe it as a uh, a white wine as opposed to a sparkling wine um because that's that's also how i like to treat them uh we certainly we, we pour them in white wine glasses unless a, a guest requests a, a flute um and i think that these are expressive white wines that that should be treated as as such absolutely they, they really really are and i think it's great that you serve them in white wine glasses and the problem with champagne is that for the longest time people kind of threw it in the category of oh it's what you drink to have a celebration or around the holidays and stuff like that and um rather than pigeonholing it into that i think you're missing out on really one of the great white wines yeah. we as we we're talking about that can go with so many many different things and and now there's you know so many different styles this uber crisp blanc de blancs and then there's pinot noirs that have body and weight but still good cut um there's kind of these venice rosé champagnes that are like totally awesome that you could drink with steak you know i mean the whole notion of champagne kind of being something that you could have throughout the meal i think it's it's absolutely true yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, now that we've covered the uh, classics of Barolo and Champagne, I'd love to move the conversation towards some more up-and-coming wines and, and certainly the, the topic that has uh, been a hot-button topic for, for a number of years now, the natural wines. Um, does, how does the natural wine market affect what you do? Is it something that, even, that you even contemplate when making decisions about finding producers uh what are are your thoughts on natural wines it's an interesting subject you know i mean we have a lot of natural wines um we have a lot of producers who are really at the forefront 
of natural, organic, and biodynamic viticulture. Um, I guess where I have an issue is um, kind of how the whole thing has become um, a little dogmatic, um, and people go to the extremes. Um, and I think as a result, um, there's, I think, in some circles, there's this idea that, you know, if it's a natural wine, it's got to it's gotta look like a natural wine. It's got to be a little funky. It's got to be a little brown. Um, but I think more and more people are kind of coming around to the idea that, you know, wine has to be, you know, clean. It has to taste like where it's from. And, you know, the notion of uh, there's an argument that, you know, if you don't add anything, you know, that's the ultimate expression of terroir. Um, I would not agree with that. I think that uh, that a little tiny dose of, of sulfur to give the wine a little precision um, will result in a wine that actually has a, a cleaner, more precise expression of the underlying terroir. Otherwise, you're tasting, you know, the process. You might as well age the wine in, in 100% new oak. That's another process, um, you know. Is it almost the, the idea where you should taste the wine and you're like, oh, that's a delicious wine. I really like it. And then afterwards you find out, oh, this is a naturally made wine where they were good stewards of the of the land and you like it even more because of that not that you go into it liking it because you know what what they did in the vineyard or or how they how they made the wine and that kind of judges the way that you that you approach the wine yeah i think first and foremost it's got to be a good wine and more and more i think we're seeing that those two things kind of go hand in hand People are are um, are treating their vineyards better. Even people that are not officially organic, mm-hmm. you know, they're as close to organic as possible. It's sort of like, well, given the choice of losing my entire crop or you know adding a little something, uh, people you know have to make the right decision. And uh, you know, but other than that, you know, they're they're organic and they realize it's important to you know not screw up your vineyards by you know throwing tons of chemicals in. Um, I guess where my issue is that, you know, uh, what I don't really understand is how some people feel like, you know, certain natural wines are kind of more natural than other people's natural wines. I mean, how could, how could a wine like, you know, Ouet or uh, Domaine Lecou, um, those guys were on the, on the forefront. They were, you know, farming organically in, in the seventies, farming biodynamically in, in the eighties. Um, you know, this, well, well before it was like super popular and there are some people that sort of dismiss them because, you know, the wines are clean and they're precise and, and they taste like, you know, their underlying terroirs. Um, they add a little bit of sulfur at the bottling. Um, I mean, to me, that's, it's preposterous. I mean, those are great examples of great wines and great examples. I will of take all of their Muscadet <laughs> and all their Huet all summer long. Uh, cause those are, those are definitely two of, uh, of our household wines. Uh, I love both of them. Awesome. Yeah. I mean that, that, that the, precision and of uh, the fruit and it's so clean and beautiful and bright I, I love both of those wines so much um and yeah i mean that that's preposterous to me that anyone would say anything bad about either of those two wines yeah i don't know whether it's bad it's just that you know they're not in the club you know right. and that that's the other element you know a lot of the, a lot of the natural wine movement is it's very much like a club you go to these natural tastings in uh in France and, and Italy and stuff like that. And there's a bunch of, you know, guys running, running around with, you know, long hair and tattoos and showing their funky wines and, you know, they're cool and hipster and, you know, but like at the end of the day, people actually have to drink the stuff, you know? Like, yeah. And they have to sell it to people. <laughs> in the restaurant. Exactly. So, you know, I kind of see, you know, maybe we're, 
we're coming around, you know, the All other right, well, end. So I want to ask you about orange wines then. Do you, how do you feel about orange wines? Do you think that an orange wine can possibly be a terroir-driven specific wine? Or are only white wines that are made in a uh, uh, without skin maceration style? Yeah, are those the only white wines that can be enjoyable and fresh and lively and delicious? I thought you weren't going to put me on the spot. Sorry. <laughs> I had to give you one hardball. Absolutely. No. Uh, I think that um, I think that those wines are uh, they're terroir wines in the sense that a lot of those wines, you know, there's a historical context, you know, for why those wines are made the way they are, especially like the, the Friulian wines, which is kind of, you know, the epicenter for all that you know there's a history for making wines like that and the continuing the history i think continuing the traditions i think is a is a really important um part of of winemaking i think those wines are are really interesting i think you know wine needs to have diversity it really does and you know i'm uh, I say that about, you know, funky wines, you know, I think it's okay that, you know, there's a reference of a funky wine. Uh, I think it's, it's okay that there's orange wine. I mean, there's a place for, for a lot of stuff. You're just not going to drink it. See, I, I you I, know, I, I like, I like orange wine, but you know, for me, a glass or two is, is enough. Is enough. Like to drink a whole bottle with two people of orange wine is, it's, that's, you know, that's not where I would normally go. Give me a, give me a glass of champagne. Uh, I could drink a whole bottle of champagne. <laughs> absolutely, I hear you absolutely. For me, I, I just to interject my opinion. I feel that um, since orange wine is so new for so many producers, people are still sorting it out. And there are producers who I think are are quite adept at it, and there are producers who really are doing a horrible job uh, with great intentions. Um, and I think that the quality is going to continue to increase. But for me, the the ones who are doing a really good job make some some very compelling wines um like the palo bea santa chiara for yeah. instance that is to me a, a not it's not that funky of a wine it's not really a funky wine and i think i think what those wines offer in terms of uh wine and food pairing i think is really interesting mm-hmm. because you have this texture that you, you just can't get from a, a wine that's directly pressed and I think, you know, all that extra texture, you know, I think can really interplay with, with lots of different foods. And so, uh, you know, I think orange wine should have a, should have a place. I mean, to me, it's a, the ultimate kind of by the glass, you know, part of a tasting menu kind yes. of thing that's married up like perfectly where a regular white wine wouldn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you on that. And are there any other new producers or new regions that you're particularly excited about? Uh. You know, I think that um, I think we, we've been involved in the Alta Piedmont region. I think that's a, a very, very exciting region. You know, Gamay, yes, I Gattinara, love this producer Pedarino Gattinara that you have. We have it uh, at Alta Linea, and uh, it's just and how you find these producers like them, like Trinquero, Calabretta, who release their wines late in Italy. It's just like we're able to offer at a very reasonable, approachable price. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but nope. it, it's, I, I, it excites me quite a bit. Um, like Pedarino Gattinara, we, you know, is less than $80 on our list. There's like for a 2001 vintage, oh. an outstanding vintage that's over 14 years old um, that has many of the characteristics of, of Barolo, but it's definitely its own specific, unique thing. It's just very exciting. And, and again, like Trinquero Barbera, I absolutely love 
love those wines, uh, and they cost you know even maybe less than the than the Gattinara. And uh, as I said before, Calabretta is on all of our lists. I can't imagine having an Italian wine list without their wines on it. Yeah, well, I think it's great. People are really um, discovering that region just for that for that reason because yeah. it's it's their remarkable values. Mm-hmm. And you know, with the story of Pedarino, it's like it's two brothers. They kind of have two hectares. They farm organically. They make some wine. They get around to bottling it eventually. You know, it's it's not really, you know, they're not looking to, like, make a killing on the stuff. Um, but these things exist if you, you know, turn over the rocks and, and, and you find them. And, um, you know, we I remember when we visited them the first time, um, we're looking around the cellar, and, and there's, a, there's a tank, and it says... 1996 and we said well you know what's that and it's like oh yeah i got some 96 just haven't gotten around to bottling it you know and this is like <laughs> this is like two years ago you know it was like well can we buy some he's like yeah i guess so i just got to get around to bottling so you know we bought the, the entire tank and you know we started out with them we had you know some 1996 no it was great it was outstanding oh. And then uh, the one producer, I mean, we have to wrap up soon. Again, going back to Trincaro, we did a, a staff training uh, with Trincaro that came to Lartuzzi's, completely charmed and wooed the, the staff. Um, and now anytime uh, bring them up or, or tell the story about how they can no longer put their own name on their label, it just is absolutely you know, mind blowing to to everyone. Yeah, no, that was that was fascinating. I mean, I remember having these long conversations with Ezio Tranquero because he felt like you know Big Brother was, you know, stepping on his head. You know, they were getting these threatening letters from you know Tranquero in California that oh, you can't use your name. Like, wait a second, it's my name. We've been selling wine, you know, since the twenties. Um, you know, my grandfather, and and you know, what do you mean I can't can't use this? You know, um, but fortunately they they were able to come to some kind of solution. But you know. It's a great and singular wine. I'm glad you really like that, Joe. I mean, most people don't think of Barbera uh, that can age, but, you know, this is really singular Barbera. Um, I think what's interesting about him, too, he's a very close friend with Giampiero Bea. And to me, the wine is a lot yeah. like Bea Sargentino. It's almost like, you know, if Bea made Barbera, it would taste like Trinquero. Um, and that's a, and when you taste it, you really, you really think about it. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And if you look at the, we only have like four red magnums uh, at Altalinea, and it is Calabretta uh, at Neroso, uh, Trinquero Barbera, and uh, Paolo Bea Sagrantino 2007, which, by the way, if you, if you find any around, that is like the greatest vintage of that wine ever. It's like way step up from the last two years. But uh, I, it makes sense now that, you know, that. Yeah, when you really, you taste you this, the together. similarity. You know, there's a lovely rusticity to the wine. They age beautifully. Uh, the first time I tasted them, I met them in, in, a, in a restaurant. And they had wines going back to the 70s. And we just started open popping corks. And I'm like, what the hell is this stuff? Like, bar- this is Barbera? How, how often does that happen? Like, you're like, how does no one know about this? How has no one brought this in? I mean, you've, I, I've heard this argument. Uh, and this will be this will be the last question because we needed to wrap up. That that. All the great wines have been, you know, have been have been brought in at this point. That there's so many importers and so many distributors around. Um, are you still able to find new producers that no one else is working with? Uh, it's getting harder and harder because they're just like you say. There's lots of people, you know, combing the territory, and you know, you you think you make a discovery and. You know, the guy's like, oh, yeah, I'm being brought in by Joe Blow Imports, and, and uh, he buys 10 cases a year. I'm like, well, you know, 
we could buy more than 10 cases and like, well, you know, we're, so we're represented. Um, so, you know, there's lots of stuff that is, is taken, but there's, there's still stuff to, to find. That's yeah. what's amazing about, about the wine business is you, know, you find these little diamonds in the rough and, um, you bring them to people like you who get super excited and bring them to people. And, and that's, you know, it's one of the great things about, about our business and the kind of wines that we sell. Yeah. Well, I cannot agree, uh, anymore. Um, Doug, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Joe, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, And for all all of you out there, if you see Planner Selections on the back label of a bottle, it will almost certainly be an excellent quality bottle of wine. It's something we we work with these wines at all of the restaurants, and I'm proud to do so. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Joy Morales and Jack Inslee, our producers for In the Drink, and... uh, all of you for listening. Thanks so much. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.